A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And we're coming to you live from the Heritage Harvest Festival at Monticello in Charlottesville, Virginia. This week, in honor of July 4th, we're exploring an important part of American history, the contributions of enslaved black chefs, whose work influences American cuisine to this day. And to do that, we're traveling to a real plantation. This live show you're gonna hear took place under a big tent on the lawn at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. The Heritage Harvest Festival has food vendors, farmers, artisans, seed exchange, overall about 2,000 people. It's a joyous backdrop for what would be a day of conflicting emotions. Monticello is right behind you all. I can see it behind you. We're under a tent. It's beautiful. There's not a cloud in the sky. Um, it's a glorious day to be here. Thomas Jefferson grew up on one of the largest tobacco plantations in Virginia. And when he was 21, he inherited thousands of acres of land, including this little hilltop that was always his favorite boyhood haunt called Monticello, Little Mountain. And that's where we are right now. The process of building and rebuilding Monticello, this home, was his obsession. He spent decades, he would go to Europe and come back, he'd be like, no, I need this different kind of roof, and no, I want pillars, and no, I need to design the kitchen this way. And, and he, he, he never stopped. And that obsession bankrupted his family and also produced one of America's most iconic architectural masterpieces, the home of the man who wrote that all men are created equal. Monticello was also a working plantation, home to about 130 enslaved African-Americans at any given time. Over the course of his life, Thomas Jefferson owned 607 people and had six children with at least one of them. These are the contradictions of this place. Jefferson was also America's first foodie. When he lived in France, he brought the enslaved chef James Hemings, brother of Sally Hemings, with him. James learned to speak French. He studied under the French masters of the day. And he fused what he learned with Virginia's food traditions. French fries, ice cream, mac and cheese, meringue. All of these foods came to America through Monticello. On that beautiful day at Monticello, we had a great live show with Gail Jessup White, who you'll hear in a bit. She's a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and of enslaved chef Peter Hemmings. But this podcast episode is going to focus on what Gail and I did before we took the stage, because that's the part of the day that stuck with me the most. We toured Monticello's kitchens, along with two black historians. So, Naya, where are we right now? Uh, we are in the oldest building on the mountaintop. We're standing in the basement level of the South Pavilion. 
Uh, and the South Pavilion is the first building that's constructed here. Uh, we're standing in a space that was originally a kitchen and then was later a wash house. And it's probably about uh, 18 by 18 in terms of dimensions. It's not a huge space. Um, you can see around us the base of the original stew stove, which we uh, discovered during the archaeology of this space once we removed the floor. Oh, yeah, it looks almost like the base of a fireplace. Yeah, it looks kind of like the base of a fireplace. This is Naya Bates. She's a historian at Monticello. The room we're in is dark with exposed bricks. It feels almost like a square cave. And so who cooked here? Uh, so in this space, we think... Um, Ursula Granger and probably uh, Sook Evans or Sookie uh, were probably the first two cooks in this space. Uh, and then later in this space's use, James Hemmings would have come on as head chef. And Ursula Granger was the first head chef in Monticello, is that right? Yeah, we believe Ursula did most of the early cooking. Uh, Jupiter Evans' wife, Suck or Sookie, um, would have also been cooking in this space, and they probably shared those responsibilities. In 1967, a bathroom for Monticello's tourist was built inside this kitchen. Naya can't say for sure why this decision was made, but she suspects it just wouldn't have occurred to the white people running Monticello at the time that visitors would care about seeing the place where the enslaved cooked. Three years ago, the room was excavated, the bathroom was removed, and what remains of the kitchen was open to the public. As I said, we were joined on the tour by Gail Jessup White, a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and of the enslaved chef Peter Hemmings, brother of James and Sally Hemmings. Today, Gail works at Monticello as a community engagement officer. When I'm here, I feel the weight of history in this space. My ancestors were here. When we excavated this space, it had been covered up for 200 years. So when I walked on the ground that we're looking at now, it was with the knowledge that my great-great-great-grandfather, Peter Hemmings, who also cooked here, would have walked on that same ground. So for me, this space is the most sacred ground on this plantation. It's amazing how, like, even something as simple as just seeing the, the, a rectangle of bricks on the ground that were the base of a hearth or a chimney like you can really picture it. Like I can picture enslaved chefs working in here. And that's the point of spaces like this, because it gives the enslaved the humanity that they've been robbed of in American history. Gail, do you remember the first time you came into this space? I absolutely remember the first time. I can tell you exactly what I had on. I had on a yellow jacket. And in spite of having on that bright yellow jacket... I got on my hands and knees, and I rubbed that red clay that we're looking at right now all on my hands, pushed my jacket sleeves up all on my arms. Why was rubbing the clay on your hands specifically, though? My people touched that ground. I wanted to be as close to them as I possibly could, and that, for me, was the closest I've ever been to them physically. Michael, how do you feel when you come into a space like this? Um, like I need to get to work. My job is to bring spaces like this to life. This is my third guide on the tour, Michael Twitty. He's the author of The Cooking Gene, a journey through African-American culinary history in the Old South. Michael's also a historical interpreter, so he cooks at former plantations using the methods of enslaved chefs. He described what the cooking process in this kitchen was actually like over 200 years ago. Right now it's about between going in 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, family would have already eaten breakfast by then. 
So your job between nine and two is the biggest hustle of the day. That's a time period when you have to pull together the main meal. Because remember, there's no, <laughs> there no, it's not like Disney movies where there are all these candles, right? People eat and socialize with natural light and firelight. By the time the true supper comes on, it's going to be dark. And those are generally leftovers. So you have to think about people going to a garden, um, the keys to the pantry being opened by um, the lady of the house. I would love to get a little bit technical here about the type of cooking that was happening in this space. So am I right to kind of divide the timeline into sort of like before and after James came back from France? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Coming up, when James Hemings goes to France, food in America is changed forever. And so is James. Slavery is uh, illegal in in France, and James was free while he was there. Uh, The only thing he would have had to do to claim that freedom is to petition a French court. Stick around. Yummy. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level, and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details. And you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas. You can taste the tahini. You can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. 
I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear Boar's Head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman, and I got some exciting news from my friends at Bonza. Now, you know, they make the only gluten-free cascatelli from chickpeas available nationwide in Whole Foods. Well, now Bonza has a new shape out. It's not one I invented, but it's still very exciting. The new shape is one you know and love, I bet. It's Bucatini. They tell me this is the only gluten-free Bucatini available in a national U.S. retailer. I mean, thank goodness Bonza is here. I can't wait to try it. You can get it at Amazon, Whole Foods, and eatbonza.com. And again, Bonza Cascatelli, also available nationwide at Whole Foods. Now, back to my tour of Monticello. I was joined by Monticello historian Naya Bates, historian and writer Michael Twitty, and Gail Jessup White, a direct descendant of Thomas Jefferson and of enslaved chef Peter Hemings, brother of James and Sally Hemings. In 1784, James Hemings had already spent time working in the kitchen of Monticello. Then, President George Washington appointed Thomas Jefferson as Commerce Minister to France. Jefferson brought Hemings with him for the specific purpose of training in the art of French cuisine. James was 19 years old. As our tour moved from the first kitchen of Monticello to the second, I asked Naya about that time. James trains in France. He's training under a French chef. Uh, he's put into a world that he's never seen. You know, they're on the other side of the world. Uh, and while plantation culture is something to learn, like French elitism is an entirely different world to step into. And he learned the French the language, too. Yeah, he learned to speak French. He learned to, to write, you know. Um, you know, he's, he's dealing with a lot of different things. As much as Jefferson stepped into a world that he was out of place in, Imagine James having grown up here in Virginia on this plantation. He traveled. I mean, he'd been to Richmond, to Williamsburg, um, to Philly, right? But uh, Paris is a world-class city. Uh, and James would have had probably a network of people that he got to know while he was there. He's working uh, not only in elite kitchen spaces, um, but also negotiating a world where there are free blacks, uh, where there's a movement, even, um, because slavery is uh, illegal in, in France. And James was free while he was there. Uh, the only thing he would have had to do to claim that freedom is to petition a French court for it, right? Uh, and Jefferson was aware of that. So he's navigating a space where it's like, I can be free, but I don't have any family here. 
or I could go home and be a slave where all my family is. You know, like he's just in a very tough position. So it's like he, he could have been freed, but then it's like, where do you, where, where, yeah, does, like, where, 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 where do does you a go? man like James Hemings go right ahead of the French Revolution? So Hemings continues his culinary training. After three years working under the most famous chefs in France, he becomes the chef de cuisine at Jefferson's private residence in Paris, which is America's first embassy. Hemings is cooking for aristocrats, diplomats, the most discerning palates in Europe. And it's here that he develops his signature style of cuisine, half French, half Virginian. In 1789, five years after going to Paris, Hemings and Jefferson return to the U.S. James is gaining all these skills and he brings them back here uh, and he negotiates his freedom with Jefferson in that moment. You know, when they arrive back in Philadelphia, uh, James says, I want to be free. And Jefferson, of course, is like, well, I just spent all this money having you trained to be a chef and to make the food I want at my house in Monticello. And if I let you go, who's going to do that? Uh, So the agreement with James is that James has to train someone else if he wants his own freedom. So James Hemings comes with Jefferson back to Monticello, and he revolutionizes the kitchen there. He has a new stove built. You know how these days rich people have these like super fancy 20,000 BTU six burner Viking ranges that cost who knows how much? James's new stove at Monticello is the 1790s equivalent of that. As our tour continued, we entered that second kitchen and saw the stove. The stew stoves is very French. The raised hearth is very German. And the, op- the open hearth is very English. So each of these cultures had its own unique way of preparing cooking the food that is because, because they have certain kinds of dishes they want. Before James Hemings goes to France, cooking at Monticello and most other plantations in the area was done in the English style, in a big pot over a wood fire. Once that fire's going, you don't have a lot of control over the heat. But as Michael explains, the French stove works with charcoal, and it has metal grates on top. It almost looks like an old-fashioned grill. So you can make those more delicate French sauces by banking the coals to one side. That way you get different parts of the stove at different temperatures. Those cooking grates can be raised or lowered, closer to or farther from the fire. You can set different pots in different areas, move things around. You can get really, really, really precise. Now, this is the more exciting story to me, is the description, Jefferson's table is half Virginian and half French in style, with everything served in good taste and abundance. It's a very famous quote about the the Hemings table. And what's spectacular about it is that was sorry that, that was it was some other sort of some other was it Daniel one of, Webster was it Daniel, Daniel Webster thank you, yeah, you Daniel Webster like in his diary or his journal or right. letter said that of coming here for, to eat right and so when we hear the words half Virginian we know what the heck they mean by half Virginian we know that they're talking about corn and simlings and and green beans and squash and tomatoes and fresh field peas and peanuts and okra and watermelon and all the things that have come from black and brown people. But you take that and you give it this delicacy of French sauces and preparation and the light hand at at pastry, and it becomes something totally different. You see, that's the thing about, that's why the black cook was so important. Is there one specific dish that you can tell me about that's sort of like, this was sort of the, the way it was done before James went to France, and then how was it adapted when it became this sort of half Virginian, half French thing? I think the I think the coolest example is always going to be macaroni and cheese. You know, so the form is Italian and French, right? He made it very British. It's very custardy and very pudding-like, right? 
But then there comes us, the spices, the the little the little little pop, the little whatever, the color, and also the fact that it's for us. The purpose is to serve food that's communally engaging. You know, our food is designed. It's not individualistic. It's so everybody can like dig in as a family, as a community, and eat well and celebrate each other. That's that's the that's the that's the heart of the West African aesthetic with food. So you add all those things together, and you think about it. We didn't have no macaroni and cheese in Africa, but it doesn't matter because we blackified that macaroni and cheese and made it taste ten times better. And that's what we do. Gail, when I think about how much what a staple mac and cheese is across this entire country. I mean, like mac and cheese is a bedrock food that children all over America grow up eating. You go to the supermarket and you see rows and rows of mac and cheese. What do you think James would make of that? I don't know what James would make of that. So I'm not going to say how James would feel about it. I'll say how I would feel about it. If it were to happen to me, and my mind would be blown, I would think it was wonderful. I would think I was a badass. Because guess what? James was a badass. So, yeah, I would be blown away by it. At the same time that James Hemmings is doing all this incredible work with food at Monticello, he's also preparing to leave. As you heard, Jefferson said he wouldn't free Hemmings until a replacement had been trained. So James trains his brother, Peter. So imagine this scenario, if you would. Two brothers, and the Hemmingses were close. And how do we know they were close? Because they named, their siblings named their children after each other. So there was a closeness with that family. So you think of these two brothers. They're probably close. One brother is to walk away in a couple of years a free man, while the other brother is to remain enslaved until he's in his mid-50s, which then would have been an old man. Think of the exchange between them. Think of the sacrifice it must have felt like for one to be making for the other. Think of what James might have said to Peter. You know, this will put you in better stead with the master. So between the two of them, there must have been this swirl of emotions, maybe even some resentment, because one man was going to walk away and another man was going to stay. But ultimately, it was love. So I see those two men working together, knowing that this might be toward the end, the last time they get to spend any extensive time together. And supporting each other for what might lie ahead. James, you're going to be okay. Peter, you're going to be okay. And so eventually Peter was trained and Jefferson freed James Hemings. Yeah, oh, Jefferson, the, we have the, there's, there's a manumission page. We know what was written in it. We know that, yes, he was freed. James was freed. Jefferson kept his word. Jefferson kept his word to Sally Hemings. James was James Hemings' sister, that in fact, their children would be freed upon um, the age of 21. 
And what happened to James Hemings after he was freed? This would have been, um, what happened to James Hemings was a true tragedy. Apparently he died from drinking, it's sad, uh, in documents. He was uh, working in Baltimore at a tavern, and it's sad that he committed suicide. He was only 36 years old. Well, think about this man. He couldn't live in a white world and feel safe. He couldn't be in a black world. He could have been re-enslaved for that matter. Somebody might have captured him. Who you, you know, you lived in a perilous world when you were a black person. Um, and, and we're assuming that he could have passed. We don't actually know that. That's an assumption we're making. Whether he could pass for yeah, white. We don't actually know that. Um, he couldn't be with his family, really. He, he came back here to visit for a couple of months at one point. He traveled around the world. But he never really found his place. And in addition to that, he was free, but the people he loved most in the world were not. And these emotions, the strain, the stress of what James Hemings felt really wasn't unusual for black people. They, they all felt, if they were free, they felt those constraints. They felt those dilemmas. They felt those losses. As for Peter Hemmings, after years as the head chef at Monticello, he became the plantation's master brewer. He was so good that Jefferson told his buddy James Madison, who lived down the road, hey, send your brewer to train here at my guy's really good. Actually, Jefferson wrote, quote, our malter and brewer is uncommonly intelligent and capable of giving instruction. When Jefferson died, most of his slaves were auctioned off on Monticello's lawn to pay off the family's debts. Peter Hemmings was purchased by a relative and given his freedom. By then, he was in his late 50s. He lived into his mid-60s, working as a tailor in Charlottesville. Even after James and Peter Hemmings stopped cooking at Monticello, their legacy continued for years through the enslaved chefs Edith Hearn Fawcett and Francis Gillette Hearn. And the food that all these chefs made over the years was known far and wide at the time as one of the highlights of a visit to Jefferson's Monticello. I have this perception of, of Jefferson as sort of the original, America's original fancy foodie. Okay. Um, I, I, is know, that a fair characterization? Yeah, I would say it's fair. I mean, Jeff- What are some examples of that? I mean, so Jefferson is all about cultivation of taste, not just uh, food, but also architecture and fashion. Uh, we've got historians here who study those things. Uh, but I think what's important about him is Jefferson considers himself a model for what other Americans should be. Uh, and that includes food, especially food. Uh, people came to visit Monticello all the time. Uh, and part of that experience was getting food that you would not get in Virginia. You know, like this half Virginian, half French cuisine is so important to people that at first they don't know how to handle it when they come here to eat. They're like, what is this on this plate? Wait, you, you said it's so important to people? Well, yeah, I'm saying it's it's so important. Like food is so critical to the conversations that are happening at the table. I mean, er, the early American Republic is almost entirely fueled by conversations that happened over dining tables. I think Jefferson is cognizant and aware that the things that he's um, putting on the table and I also want to qualify that and say that uh, the women in this house really determined the menu for the day. So it would have been Jefferson's daughter setting the meals for the guests. But, you know, the food that goes on the table here is important to the conversation as well. Uh, Jefferson would have been aware that this is not typical, that this is 
uh, not what people are used to eating. Uh, we have lots of letters and evidence of people coming to Monticello, sitting down for dinner, and then being confused by what's on their plates and not knowing what to do with that. Uh, Jefferson, of course, is like, give it a chance. Right. You know, you're, you'll really like this food. So and, that that in some ways makes him a foodie. But also, he's uh, Jefferson's got a scientific mind, and he's thinking of how to diversify crops here uh, in the U.S. So throughout his travels uh, in Europe, he's sending back seeds here that are later cultivated in the garden by Wormley Hughes. Uh, and that garden that we call the retirement garden is really an experimental place. Uh, Jefferson is trying to figure out what will survive on the grounds here. You know, he's got like 56 different types of beans, over 300 trees in the orchard. I mean, just different varieties of different plants to see what is hardy, what can withstand winter, you know. So he was really committed to like nation building in a very practical Mm -hmm. way. In a very practical way that intersects with food. Despite the importance of food at Monticello, until a few years ago, this kitchen wasn't a standard part of the chore. In fact, you could easily have spent a day at the plantation without hearing much about slavery at all. Today, the lives of enslaved people are part of every tour. These kinds of changes are happening at a lot of former plantations. Whitney Plantation in Louisiana now focuses exclusively on the lives of enslaved people. Meanwhile, at George Washington's Mount Vernon, more information about the enslaved people there has been added to their tours in the last seven years or so. They've even created a database with biographies of each person. Matt Briney, the VP of Media and Communications at Mount Vernon, wrote in an email that the new information about enslaved people, quote, has generally been well received, I believe mostly because it's additive and hasn't distracted us from our main focus to talk about the life and achievements of George Washington. Online reviews of Monticello are overwhelmingly positive. And while they don't have hard data, Naya says anecdotally, more black Americans and other people of color are visiting Monticello because of these efforts to tell a more complete story. But some white Americans are pushing back against these changes happening around the country. One visitor to a plantation in South Carolina complained in 2019 that she, quote, didn't come to hear a lecture on how the white people treated slaves. Michael Twitty saw that comment and responded on his blog, quote, I take my job seriously because, frankly, you're not the one I'm centering. I'm performing an act of devotion to my ancestors. I asked Naya, the historian of Monticello, what she makes of the pushback. (laughs) Um, I find it kind of funny in a way that anyone believes that they can learn about the founding of our country and not learn about slavery uh, and further that they could learn about slavery but not learn about enslaved people uh, or that they can learn about any of those things and not see how it connects to our present. What I hope for our visitors is that uh, they come here and they're able to connect with the experiences of the enslaved community, uh, whether that's motherhood, whether that's work in the kitchen. I hope they see something that they're able to connect and identify with. For Gail Jessup White, coming to Monticello, where she works now, is much more personal. As I said to her, on one hand, her ancestors made incredible contributions to American history in these kitchens. Contributions that you can see today in every supermarket in the country. But those accomplishments are inextricably tied to a pain that I can't begin to imagine. I ask Gail, how do you process that? How do I process the pain? hmm. And or the contradiction. Well... Because there's the pain and the pride that you can't separate from each other. Well, but here's what I remind myself when I think of these things, that the people who were enslaved here didn't think, wake up every day and go, oh, I'm a slave. 
They, they saw themselves as people who had lives and had families. It was hard. But do you think those people would have been able to keep going if they hadn't found some joy in their lives? Of course not. So when I come to work every day, I think of them as fully developed humans. I think of their pain, too, because there would have been a lot of pain. I think of their crying. I think of their laughing. I think of their playing games. Children here played games. We have artifacts. There were toys. There was a, a, a mouth harp. They were entertaining themselves. One should never think there was never laughter and there was never joy on a plantation. They had lives. If Thomas Jefferson saw the four of us here in this kitchen having this conversation, and in particular, me speaking with the three of you, what do you think he would think? You mean you, a white guy, speaking with three black people in a plantation? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think, and, and, first of all, and the three think, of you, And the three of you being the spokespeople for the Yeah, he'd probably be like, who invited these people to come challenge me in my own place like this? Um, mm. <laughs> he'd probably also be wondering why there's no food in this kitchen currently. Um, and I can't cook, so he wouldn't want that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he really would be kind of appalled, honestly. Uh, I don't know that he ever envisioned a world where the three of us talking with you as a possibility. You know, that we've been educated in public and private schools, that we've gone to his, uni I went to his university, and I know he didn't envision that happening. Um, you know, I think this is just not a space that he's even able to process, if I'm able to even imagine what Jefferson would think in this space, you know? Um, I think, you know, uh, he might actually be impressed that people are still here. That might be the only enduring legacy of his home that he actually considered, you know? Um, in some ways, the entrance hall at Monticello was a museum and he intended it to be as such. Um, but it might surprise him to see, you know, I don't know how many people we're expecting today, probably somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people uh, coming to his house to talk about food. I don't know that he ever imagined that. French fries, ice cream, mac and cheese, meringue. All of these foods came to America through Monticello, which makes the enslaved chefs who lived and worked here our country's culinary founding fathers and mothers. was Gail Jessup White, Community Engagement Officer in Monticello. When we recorded this episode, Naya Bates was the public historian of slavery and African-American life at the Thomas Jefferson Foundation in Monticello. She's now a PhD candidate in history and African-American studies at Princeton. And Michael Twitty remains one of our nation's foremost food writers, culinary historians, and historical interpreters. His books are The Cooking Gene, Rice, and Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. My thanks to Leslie Bradley and everyone at Monticello. The Heritage Harvest Festival was a really great event. I want to go back there and bring my whole family. I got so much from touring the grounds there and learning more about the enslaved people who lived there and about Thomas Jefferson. I highly recommend a visit to Monticello. Next week, we're playing the 2023 edition of our popular game show, Two Chefs and a Lie. I talk with three people 
Two of them are real chefs. One of them's a liar. I know nothing about any of them going in, and I have to guess which one of them is faking it. And guess what? So do you. We'll play together. That's next week. While you wait for that one, check out last week's show about what people eat when they hike the entire Appalachian Trail. This episode was originally produced by me along with... And Sandy. And... Ngofen Putubwele. It was edited by Peter Clowney. The Sporkful team now is senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producer... Andres O'Hara. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And this is Carrie Duggan. And Sarah Jamison. From Alexandria, Virginia. Reminding you to eat more. Eat better. And, and eat, eat more better. better. NetCredit is here to say yes because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.